So, like I said, this sermon's just going to be a little bit longer than usual, not way longer. Um, but the reason is because, so we're teaching through the book of Haggai. Um, the passage that we're in kind of necessitates that we talk about a lot more than just the passage. So there's backstory, there's stuff going on here that kind of requires us to step back a little bit. So it's going to be like five or ten minutes longer than normal. Um, but again, there's a game. So um, the way I've been thinking about it is like, um, imagine there's a door with windows in the door so you can see through, but the windows are kind of dirty, covered. You can't quite see through the windows. Um, the other side of the door, the destination that we're trying to get to is understanding the Old Testament, not just knowing it, but being able to kind of internalize it as the people of God. Um, and when we study like verse by verse through a book of the Bible like we're doing, it's almost like we're trying to clean off one little section of the window so we can see through it. But sometimes I also want to just try to like budge the whole door open and be able to kind of look through and see the whole picture of the room behind it. And so that's kind of what we're doing is we're going to clear off Haggai so that we can see through um, that perspective of the Old Testament and also try to just kind of step back and see and understand the Old Testament as a whole. So um, that's why it's going to be a little bit more work today. But I want to remind you of something I reminded you last week, um, that this is God's word. And it's, I think, easier to remember that when we're reading like the Gospel of Matthew and there's red letters of Jesus kind of all over it. And you're like, yeah, this is Jesus. I mean, this is great. But um, do you ever think that this was Jesus's Bible, the book of Haggai and the Minor Prophets? This was the disciples' Bible, what they looked to and what they saw as leading them to the Messiah. And it is that for us too. And so there's goodness here for us and we're gonna try to uncover it. Um, so, Really quick, before we jump in, there's actually a lot of, um, when I say really quick, I mean most of the sermon is prep for the, the actual text. Um, we're going to revisit what we call like Old Testament survey. So we can throw up that slide. Um, I'm convinced that most of our confusion with the prophets um, comes from two things. One is that they use creative kind of poetic language all the time. And it's just not the way that we kind of in Western American culture read things. Um, it makes it difficult to figure out what they're saying. They'll say something in an artful way and you're like, I have to do some work to get at what they're actually trying to communicate. Um, but that just requires us to get in that mindset, to remember, hey, we're not reading a newspaper, we're reading artful, poetic, creative language. So you have gotta enter that space and kind of read it for what it is. But the second reason is because that is difficult is they refer to people and places and events that we are not familiar with. Um, like line after line, there's a name, there's a place that you don't know, and so it's really easy to be like, I don't know all of those names, none of those places, so I'm kind of checked out. And it's hard to kind of, you have to have some stamina to stay in it and understand what they're saying. But we also can just familiarize ourselves with the story, with the names and with the people, and that takes time, but that's what we're doing familiarizing ourselves with the whole story, with some of the big themes of the Old Testament so that it's not quite so foreign. So there's four things up here that the prophets, particularly the minor prophets, all the names that you, uh, the books that you probably haven't read very much, um, they refer to something in Israel's story as up here. So the first thing is the covenant. God made a covenant with the people of Israel. This was him saying, you guys are my people. He calls them his treasured possession, a nation of priests. So Israel was supposed to represent God to the world. 
Part of that was they had to adopt a specific way of life. So when you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's all these rules, things that they had to do. This was God separating them, making them categorically different than the nations around them. And they had to do those things if God was gonna hold up to his end of the covenant of protecting them and blessing them, providing them with security and abundance, they had to abide by the covenant. And there's this section in Deuteronomy that talks about how if they do abide by the covenant, if they're faithful to the things God asked them to do, then God will provide them with blessing and security and abundance. And if they don't, if they're unfaithful, there's consequences to that. And the prophets talk about that concept all the time. One phrase I've heard describing the prophets is covenant watchdogs. They're the ones that are kind of always watching Israel. Are we, are we being faithful to the way that God has asked us to be? Um, the next thing in Israel's story is that they are not faithful to the covenant. That's the story of the Old Testament is they fail over and over again. And so these curses that God said, curses is a weird word, it's consequences for being unfaithful to the covenant. Um, these things happen. They happen to Israel. They are uh, defeated by Assyria and then Babylon. They are taken out of their land. They're exiled. Their temple is destroyed. So the consequences of their unfaithfulness come upon them. But baked into the covenant, when God tells them, hey, it's gonna go well if you follow this. It's not gonna go well if you don't. If you don't and it goes bad and you're like, what have we done? Uh, if you repent, if you notice and you repent and you turn around, God says, I'll bring you back. I'll restore to you what you have lost. So built into this concept is even if they fail, God will bring them back. And that does happen. Um, they repent and return and God somehow miraculously allows Israel to return to their homeland and begin to rebuild the temple. That's kind of the immediate context of the book of Haggai. That's where we're at. And all throughout those three things, interspersed in the prophets are the moments where you're like, I'm reading something uh, maybe about the future. I don't understand what's going on here. And it's the concept of the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord. So you're reading a prophet and then he'll say something like, and in that day, this will happen, the stars will do this, or God's enemies will do this. And you're like, what am I reading about? Is this happening immediately in the context of these people or is this talking about something in the future? And the answer is yes. And that's kind of one of the mysterious, beautiful parts of the Old Testament prophets is that they are talking about Israel's immediate circumstances and also this future day where God's going to um, restore the kingdom of Israel. So when we read the prophets, they're talking about one of those four things or some combination of them, Haggai has all four of those um, kind of built into it. So that's our brief survey. Haggai chapter one is what we covered last week. Um, I don't know if I have ever, if I have, it's a few times. You really should go back and listen to the last week's message if you missed it. Um, uh, but I'll just give you the short summary. God's people, like I said, they are back in their land um, after being exiled. They had permission and some resources to rebuild their temple, which is like the setting and the structure for how they facilitate a relationship with God. Like they can't really have one without the temple. That's where the offerings and sacrifices and worship took place. So they didn't have the temple and God's like, you guys should build the temple. Um, they had permission, but they weren't doing this. They weren't following God. They weren't rebuilding the temple. And because of this, they were experiencing the consequences of being unfaithful to the covenant. Things were not going well for them. And so God speaks through Haggai and tells them, look at your life. 
do the math of all the like consequences you're experiencing and notice, hey, we're not following Yahweh. We probably should. Um, so he tells them, stop focusing on your own houses and build the temple, like get to work. And they hear God and they respond and they obey. So it's kind of a, starts as a sad story and ends like they, they do what God wants them to do and it's wonderful. So that's Haggai chapter one. Our passage today picks up about a month after this and it deals with their discouragement about the current state of the temple. It's almost like they're like, yeah, we're gonna do it. And then they walk over to the temple and they're like, oh, gosh, there's a lot, a lot to do here. Um, overwhelmed by the magnitude of the job they have in front of them. So that's where the kind of our, our, we find ourselves in the text today, Haggai chapter two. Before we dig into it though, like I said, there's a lot of backstory to do here. I have four stories to tell you. Um, Three of them are really quick. Actually, they're all quick. But the people that Haggai wrote to, um, the people reading this, this story, this letter, um, the problem is that they knew their Old Testament way, way better than we do. They knew it as well as I know, like seasons one through four of The Office, where I could find some reference in like any conversation anywhere, probably better than that. They knew their nation's history better than we know ours. So there are things that are said in this passage in particular that would almost certainly bring to their minds stories from their past. The language that's used here makes that kind of clear. And I really think it's important that we try to do that too, that we get the stories that would have come up in their minds to come up in our minds as we read the story. So I'm gonna tell them to you um, quickly. There's three stories. Joshua, Solomon, and Ezra. Joshua is Moses' successor. Um, he's the one who would actually lead God's people into the promised land. I have pictures in the slides today. Can we just have a moment to like appreciate that? Thank you. Uh, for you guys. I was like, if this is gonna be a long sermon, I should at least put some pictures for them. Joshua is the one who led them from the wilderness into their promised land. Israel is afraid to do this because they're gonna have to go in and do battle with some like evil, ruthless people. And so God tells them in Joshua 1.9, you've probably heard the phrase before, um, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is his encouragement to them. So any future Israelites after that moment who knows their people's story, hears that phrase, be strong, it's gonna like bing, they're gonna think, that's what God said to all my ancestors, to Joshua, when they were about to enter the promised land. They hear, be, be strong and courageous. They're remembering how God gave them strength to go in and conquer their enemies and to do the impossible because God was with them. So Joshua, keep that story in your mind. Have you guys seen um, the Apple Vision uh, uh, VR thing? I wish that we could all have it because you can like put these images and kind of lock them in a space like in your virtual reality, you know? And I've, if I could, I would lock that story up here so you could see it. And we're gonna try to do it on the screen at some point, but it's not VR, obviously. Um, so tuck away the story of Joshua. 400 years later-ish, we have Solomon. Solomon was Israel's king who actually built their first temple. And it is completed and dedicated to the Lord in the seventh month. Everyone say seventh month. Seventh. Okay. When it's done, they dedicate the temple to the Lord. There's this epic scene uh, in 1 Kings, like eight through 10. Um, 
they dedicate it to the Lord. They bring the ark into the center, like the most holy place of the temple. And uh, when the priests leave the ark there, they, they exit that room. It says that God's presence appears so powerfully in this cloud that it's so intense. They have to, like, they have to get out. They're probably afraid for their lives. Um, they probably can't see, don't understand what's going on, so they can't even be near it. And this section in 1 Kings describes how all these other nations not Israel, but people that maybe at one point were their enemies. All these other nations are bringing in their wealth, their resources, and their gold to contribute to the building of this temple. Notably, there's the story of the Queen of Sheba. You're kind of like, well, who, who is this? What is this? It's this foreign kind of ruler who comes to Solomon in his temple and sees how amazing he is, how amazing the temple is, and how blessed the nation of Israel is, and she just gives him gifts and gold and money to put into the temple. So Solomon builds the temple. It's glorious. They finish it in what month? The temple is built with the wealth of all these surrounding nations. Um, It's gathered and it's contributing to the splendor of Israel's temple. Okay, Joshua, Solomon, tucked away. Last story is Ezra. This is... uh, when I say it's part of Israel's past, it's like happening concurrently with the story of Haggai. So if it was in the past, it's like a couple weeks ago or months ago. Um, the, books, the book of Ezra recounts the circumstances for how Israel was allowed to return from their exile, uh, return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. So Ezra tells this story of the people of Israel either laying the foundation stones or, or finding them um, uh, and kind of beginning the work of building the temple. And some people are pumped, and they're, they're throwing a party. They're celebrating, like, we're getting to work on the temple. It's going to be amazing. But there were some there who were old enough to have seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. And they are watching. There's, like, people around them, like, yeah, we're going to do this. And they're looking at it, weeping, just, like, utterly undone because of probably the magnitude of the job that they had to do. Like, how are we going to do this? And also they're looking at it going, this is not what I remember the temple being. So they're just totally disillusioned and so sad. So Joshua, Solomon, Ezra. Joshua, be strong and courageous. God's going to be with them and help them be victorious in the task ahead of them. Solomon builds the temple during the festival in the what month? It's this epic moment in the story of Israel. I've had you say that. You're going to remember it. It's not going to lead to some like epic point. It is important, but just don't be let down if we get to it and you're like, that was it. Um, All these nations kind of funnel in their wealth, their resources, their gold to make the temple beautiful and glorious. And Ezra tells us some of the older Israelites who saw Solomon's first temple um, were just sad at what it was, the state of it. This is not going to be, even when we finish this, it's not going to be like it was before. Joshua, Solomon, Ezra. Three stories. With those three in mind, you might think, now do we get to do Haggai? No. One more fake story, okay? Keyword, fake. Imagine it's the year 2026. While we, for the last decade or two, have been worried about Russia and China, it's actually Canada that had been developing a superior army and an agenda of global domination. (laughs) Canada invades us, destroys our Capitol building and our White House. They take us captive. They exile us out of our states, up into Canada, down to Mexico. 
It's awful. Years go by, and then the global powers shift. Now Mexico, they overtake Canada. And the ruler of Mexico, for some reason, allows Americans to go back, to move back into their homeland. And so people start kind of funneling back into the Washington, D.C. area. After almost 70 years of being exiled, there's this remnant of Americans who are back home in D.C. The president of Mexico says, start, start rebuilding your country. Start with the important building. Start with the Capitol building or the White House. But the process has just started, and it seems we don't, we're not going to have what we need to do this. All we've got is like, all you can see is the concrete forms, like the framing. Um, and it looks like the footprint of the new building is not even going to be close in size to the old building. Um, but the great-grandson of Joe Biden and the great-grandson of Donald Trump, in this fake story, they were both friends and wonderful presidents. Um, <laughs> they receive a message together to deliver to this remnant of the American people. And out of all the possible days to receive this message and to give it to these newly returned American people, it comes on July 4th, the seventh month. Oh my gosh, that was on, on accident. <laughs> it was worth it. Okay, so they're standing at the ruins of the Capitol steps. You can see the two by 12 forms. You can see the steel, like rods of steel rebar coming up, concrete trucks. You can tell like the, is this going to be like it, like it was? I, I don't know. You're not even sure you're going to be able to procure like all the marble and the stone, the stuff that you're going to need to make it as beautiful as it was before. But then someone stands up to deliver a message to you, a message of encouragement and empowerment. This is going to happen. We're going to do it. So could you feel the dramatic symbolism? It's July 4th, and these important American figures, or at least the descendants of them, are here giving you this message you're looking at what you're supposed to be doing, and you're like, I don't know. But that's, that's the world that we're stepping into, into this story. And I want us to be in it. America is not Israel. Analogy ends here. Fake story, right? Okay. Verse 1, finally, Haggai chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the... The word of Yahweh came through the prophet Haggai. First thing, um, that phrase, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, that's kind of, um, that occurs four times in this book. And that's like each a separate message that God is giving to Haggai. It's kind of the outline of the book. That's how we're outlining this, um, the series. So there's four messages, four words of the Lord that come through the prophet Haggai. This is the second one. It occurs in chapter two, verse one. There's two more. The second thing is the timing of this word to the people. The 22nd day of the seventh month. So 400 years ago or so, Solomon's temple was finished. It, it could be on this exact day. This is like the 400th anniversary of the dedication of their like prized beauty possession in their land was the temple. It seems like an intentional choice of God to speak to them on this day as if an American political leader was giving a speech on July 4th to the people at the ruins of the Capitol building. There's weight and there's symbolism behind this moment, and it's important to try to feel that as we read this text. And here's the word. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Speak to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and speak to the remnant of the people 
and asked them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So he asked the people, who among them remember how spectacular the first temple was? Who remembers the house in its former glory? There probably would not have been a lot of them, but there were some older people from the remnant of Israel who would have seen the first temple before it was destroyed and would remember it. They would have talked about it with their children and their grandchildren. Maybe they would have embellished it a little bit. And he asked them, like, how does the current state of the temple look to you? Isn't it kind of like nothing compared to what you remember? God is basically anticipating and he's aware of the disillusionment that the people are feeling at the kind of onset of this project. It feels hopeless. The first temple was built with gold and precious metals and materials and stones and fabric. Solomon enlisted many, many people and a lot of wealth and the wealth from all these nations to funnel into this project of building the temple. So how are these Israelites going to do this? Basically, they're discouraged about the task ahead of them. And so here's what God says to them in their discouragement. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Does this also sound familiar? Be strong. You've got this because I'm with you. So this is the language. This is the imagery of God speaking to Joshua and to the Israelites when they were on the verge of entering the promised land. God's basically quoting himself. The situation is different, but the context is similar. God delivered his people from Egypt, made a covenant with them, promised them that he's gonna be their God. They will be his people. He'll be with them. And when they were, um, the task of entering the promised land just seemed impossible. How are we gonna do this? He said, be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And he says the same thing to Israel in the time of Haggai as they're facing down this impossible task of building the temple. A couple quotes from some Bible scholars. Eugene Merrill says, just as the Exodus had been followed by the Sinaitic covenant, it's the, like seminary speak for the covenant that we were talking about, it happened at Mount Sinai. Um, just as the exodus was followed by that covenant, so their second exodus, the return to the land after exile, is attended by God's covenantal oath that he is their God and they are his people. Joyce Baldwin says the personal presence of the Lord gives courage, determination, and the conviction that he will not permit his cause to fail. If the exile had seemed to annul the covenant, here was the sure word that just as God had been present with his people during all the events of the exodus, so he was with them still by his spirit. So when the people coming back from exile, kind of starting to work on this temple, but really just discouraged and disillusioned, they probably, and they were experiencing the consequences of being unfaithful. There was, there was blight, there was like bad harvest and there was no rain. So they were experiencing the consequences that made them feel like we might have botched this and we might not have the covenant relationship with God like we're supposed to. Um, when they thought they were on their own, um, that maybe we can't do this, um, God reassures them of his continued faithfulness to them and his presence among them. But in our final three verses, God describes how he's going to provide 
for them, how he's going to help them accomplish this task. I think six through nine, um, yeah, I think they're probably the most difficult to um, figure out in the whole book. Um, I spent the majority of my time kind of unpacking them. Old Testament scholars are kind of have differing opinions on exactly what we should do with them today. And so we're just gonna read it and then talk it through. Six through nine. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. So, in my understanding, there are two, I don't know of a better word, two levels of um, meaning in this text. There's like an immediate and a more literal understanding of it's what, it, what it means, and then a future more end times interpretation, and I think both are true. So we'll tackle the immediate context first. The issue at hand is that God's people are supposed to rebuild the temple, um, but they're discouraged because they don't know how they're gonna get what they need to do it. There's this line in Haggai 1 that says that they, they put in chapter one that they're putting their money in purses that have holes in it. Um, doesn't mean their money is disappearing, but that they're experiencing like inflation and economic hardship. They don't know how they're gonna get what they need to do this project. So God encourages them in verses four and five, be strong, you've got this. And here is how God's got this, how he's gonna help them do it. He says, just wait and see. In a little while, I'm gonna shake up the whole universe until all of its precious resources, all the gold and silver, all that you could need is gonna head your way for this project. And he says, it's all mine anyways. It makes me think about this like um, cartoon caricature stereotype of a bully who turns a kid upside down and shakes them until the money falls out of their pockets. Um, God is not a bully and the universe and everything in it belongs to him anyways. So he uh, has wise, sovereign, and sinless ways of allocating the resources of the world exactly where he wants them to be. Um, and that's what he says he's gonna do. He's like, in a little bit, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna shake everything up so that you have all you need for this project. All the things that nations desire, like gold and silver, will be brought to the temple and it will be filled with earthly splendor. So think back to the story of Solomon. That's, he's promising that something like that's gonna happen for his people. And then he reverses what he said earlier in um, chapter one when God asked the people, uh, earlier in this passage, when he asked the people to compare the state of the unbuilt temple, that what they were looking at with their memory of the first one, when he was like, they, they don't even compare, do they? But now he says the future splendor the glory that's coming to this temple is actually gonna be better than what you remember Solomon's temple being like. And um, we think we, I shouldn't, <laughs> biblical scholars, of which I am not one, I say we just because I want to, um, believe this happened shortly after um, Haggai said this. So Joyce Baldwin says, opponents who hoped to bring the building to a halt this is um, described in the beginning of the book of Ezra. There were some people that were trying to stop them from building the temple. Opponents who hoped to bring the building to a halt were ordered to pay in full the cost of the temple from the royal revenue in their own taxation district. 
This financial provision probably arrived just after Haggai's daring claim that their God owned all wealth and would meet their need. So that's kind of the immediate, um, simpler understanding of what's happening in this text. They've got a temple to build. It seems impossible. How could they get the resources they need to make it happen? God's like, be strong. We've got this. I can get you what you need to do this project. This is good and then true and true. But there is another deeper level to this. And when I say deeper, I don't mean it's more important or it's more advanced or you get a prize if you figure it out. There are prizes today, but not related to this. Um, I just mean it's just below the surface and requires a little bit of digging. And so I'm gonna take a few minutes to explain something. This is another one of those moments where we're stepping back to talk about something wider, zoomed out, and we just, we just need to do it today. Um, and it's gonna help with more than just Haggai, I think. This passage, what's happening in it, um, reminds me of this concept illustrated by a song that I love by the band U2. One of my all-time favorite bands, they have an album called No Line on the Horizon. There's a song called White as Snow. This is the game, guys. Who's ready? Okay, there's a song called White as Snow. It's kind of a deep cut. If you've heard the song, um, you're probably excluded. No, you're not excluded. If you've heard the song and you know the answer to the question when we start it, then you deserve the prize. Um, the lyrics are haunting, but so is the melody because the melody and the chord progression are borrowed from another very familiar song. Um, and so we're gonna play a game and have the prize for the winner. Um, I'm gonna play the song, not quite yet. Um, and the first person to raise their hand, and Kevin, he got it. Um, I know. <laughs> um, to raise their hand and tell me the name of the original song is gonna win the prize. Um, if it's a clear, undisputed, there's like one hand. Maddie, would you come up here actually and just stand up here with me because I, I just need two eyes on this to, to confer. Maddie, help me with my notes um, so you can blame her for it being um, three minutes shorter than it would have been. <laughs> um, she's gonna help me make sure that we pick the right person. If it's an undisputed first hand, you get it right, you get both these gift cards. It's two $30 things. If it's a tie, if Maddie are like, we don't know, I don't know, we're going to split it up, okay? So, what's that? Once they heard the prize, now they want to play. I think so, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so start it. You've got to raise your hand, and then we'll turn it down. Pause it. Yeah, Woo! undisputed winners. Gambarettis, gift cards may not work. <laughs> Didn't tell her, that was so fast, wow. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Why don't you just, actually we'll go to the, skip ahead to the next verse. I did not think that was gonna happen, that was amazing. Um, so we're gonna look at two yeah, you can turn it up. Go, sorry, start, go back to the spot, um, 248 or whatever. Left, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The right is the verse of this song, White as Snow. Yeah, 
Okay, you can cut it. So the Christmas song, you can leave the lyrics up. Um, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a plea for the Messiah, for Emmanuel, to come and make right the things in the world that are broken. The U2 verse is using that old melody and therefore that theme, the idea of longing for Emmanuel um, and laments the brokenness of the world, the road that refuses stranger, the ground is, it's so broken, it's not receiving seeds to grow and bring life. Um, It's like your brain hears the U2 lyrics, but your heart feels the meaning of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The dry ground bears no fruit. There's no kindness shown to people. And it ends with the question, where can we find this lamb as white as snow? A reference to the um, sacrifice lamb who would take away the sins and brokenness of the world. So in other words, there's an old song um, behind the new song. And the old song is lending its weight and its meaning and its dimension to a new song. Um, the prophets do this exact thing all the time. There is a very situational, specific context to what they're saying, but there's also background music happening. There's a melody, if you have ears to hear, that's playing while they're saying something. An even older song from the past that's also about their future. And if you listen close, you can hear the melody and it lends weight and meaning and dimension to the specific context of, in this case, Haggai. And so what's the old song that's playing here? Um, What should we be hearing? It's the song of the reversal of Babel and the return to the Garden Temple. That's not an official song. If you look for that on Spotify, you're not gonna find it. If you do, tell me. This song is a theme that stretches from the first page of the Bible to the very end. Um, And it's this progression from the garden, which is also kind of like a temple, the tragedy of Babel, and then the reversal of Babel, and then the renewed, this future garden temple that's also now a city. So I'm going to explain this story. Um, We could probably talk about that story for like, six to 10 weeks because it's like, that's what the story of the Bible is in some ways. Um, So I'm not gonna turn to any passages that I'm referencing. Um, You can trust me or that the references will be up there and you can write them down and go look for it. Um, But the first thing is this idea of a garden temple. So this is Genesis one and two. The idea is that the language of Genesis one and two describes a beautiful garden, But the words that they use are like overlapping words that would also, or concepts that would also be used to refer to a temple. I was just listening to this book that talked about how temples would have like parks around them, like our our version of like our idea of a a national park or something. Um, And so there's the temple and there's this like beautiful garden space around it. Um, Adam and Eve are called the image of God or humans are called the image of God. the word image in Hebrew is tselem, which is like another word for a statue or like a, an image cut into a stone. And they would use tselem outside or around in one of the, like the exteriors of these temples to show you what that God was like, what that God looked like, or at least what they thought. So humans are images of God um, and they are put in the garden. We are told Adam and Eve are put in the garden to 
work it and to keep it, to work and keep. Two Hebrew words, shamar and avad, when they are used together, almost always refer to the duties of priests in a temple. So Adam and Eve are not necessarily gardeners when it says they're put in the garden to work and keep. Yes, they're doing some earth cultivation, but the language that's used is describing priests, people who work in a temple. So part of their job was to expand the beauty and the goodness of this garden and also to um, expand it, to use the resources they had to make it bigger and even more beautiful. And so there's this random verse in Genesis you probably skipped that talks about how they had access to these random like stores of minerals and onyx stone. And they're there for them to use to make their temple, their garden temple beautiful. And the whole world was supposed to be this epic garden-like temple or, or temple-like garden dedicated to God. And um, I, I wish that we could talk about that more. If you're like, I don't see it, I don't understand. Um, that's okay. We could point you to some resources that talk about it in depth. But the idea is that Genesis 1 and 2 uses language that makes, if we were from the ancient Near East, we would be like, oh, they're describing a garden and a temple. This is strange. Um, Garden, temple was the original goal, but the project went sideways and spirals downward when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. And they're left with this shattered dream and they're cast out of the garden, blocked from coming back into it. Um, So we'll come back. That's the garden temple part. And then the story moves to the tragedy of Babel. This is in Genesis chapter 11. God created all humans to be his people, to image him, to work and care for this garden temple. When sin enters the picture, not only do they become broken individually and internally, but their ability to exist corporately is also broken. So the story of Babel recounts humanity trying to build their own society and to make a name for themselves. That's what Genesis 11 tells us they were doing. Rather than being the image of God, making God's name great, they were trying to do their own thing, making a name for themselves. And so God scatters them. He gives them different languages, scatters them across the world. And I think here we have the birth of nations, ethnicities, and different languages. It wasn't supposed to be that way. And so the rest of the Bible is the story of the reversal of Babel, the undoing of it. And it begins right away in the next chapter in Genesis 12, when God singles out, chooses one guy, Abraham, um, uh, and he tells Abraham, it's through you and your family who is going to be massive um, that I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. That's the language used in Genesis 12. And by nations, he means the ones that he just made and scattered throughout the world. So God immediately has a plan to reverse the damage that was done at Babel. He's gonna use Abraham and his family, aka Israel, to do this. So God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. He wants to differentiate them from the wickedness of other nations, but the plan was always for Israel to be a light to the nations, to bring people back to God. Israel functions as, again, as priests on behalf of God to bring the nations back in. But Israel, as part of their unfaithfulness, forgot this, and they became ethnocentric, and they demonized um, the nations around them. And so there's these reminders throughout the prophets of what Israel was supposed to be for the nations and where history is headed. And so the melody plays of the 
Garden Temple and the reversal of Babel throughout the scriptures. There's a few particular spots. If you are interested, you can go read them. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 60, and Micah 4 in particular, those three chapters. Um, But they describe the nations, which are oftentimes in the Old Testament evil and opposed to God. But it describes these nations returning to God. I lost my place. Give me a second. They're returning to this, um, what will be a restored future garden temple city to honor and worship God. And they're coming back, these passages tell us, because the temple um, and this city of peace, which is what Jerusalem means, has become this beacon of light and goodness. And it's drawing the nations back to it, undoing the damage of what happened at Babel. There's pictures of this in the New Testament too, a little one or a short one, but it's massive in its implications are the wise men that come to visit Jesus from the east. This is the picture of the nations coming back to Jerusalem to pay, um, to honor the king. And then a huge explicit reference to it is uh, the story of Pentecost. It is very much a reversal of Babel. All these nations have come to Jerusalem and they hear the people of God, these disciples who just had the Holy Spirit come on them, they're speaking their, all these different languages. And so all these foreigners are hearing their own language praising God. So that's the story. The story of Scripture is a story of the, the reversal of Babel. And it's heading towards this future restored garden slash temple slash city. The thing that all nations are being drawn to is this future place. Um, all that Eden was supposed to be and more. This is described in Revelation 21 and 22. Sometimes the chapter headings for those sections are sometimes called Eden Restored. Um, and it talks about all these precious stones and glorious shiny jewels adorning the city and how the nations and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into this new city. And it says there's actually no longer a physical temple building because God's presence is just there among them. So it feels like Eden, the language is like what's described in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's improved and it's even more glorious. So if that could be a song, I wish I could know what it would sound like. Um, That's playing in the background of Haggai chapter 2, particularly verses 6 through 9. Creation was supposed to be this epic, glorious, garden-like temple dedicated to the glory of God, humans as his image, made to do as God did, to create and to multiply and build culture and cities and, and beauty in the world. The project is broken and derailed. Humans are cast out of the garden at Babel. They're dispersed and divided. And the whole of the biblical story is the journey back to a redeemed and restored garden-like temple where not just Israel, but all nations and tribes and tongues give worship and honor and glory to God. So this passage not only refers to like the immediate context of the surrounding nations bringing treasures to the temple at the time of Haggai, but also in the future when they bring not just earthly treasure, but they bring themselves to honor and worship and join the family of God. Joyce Baldwin um, has an excellent commentary on Haggai, probably gonna quote her a lot more. Haggai foresees the whole universe in such a series of convulsions that every nation will gladly part with its treasures. These will be brought to add beauty upon beauty to the temple until it is filled with splendor. So when God says that the glory of the present house will actually be 
greater than the glory, uh, the former glory of that temple, of Solomon's temple. He's talking about that moment probably, but also the future. The garden temple that history is moving toward. And yeah, God's gonna provide for Israel at the time of Haggai, but he's doing so much more in the future. So, in the same way that there's kind of the immediate context, we're almost done. Immediate context and then kind of like a slightly kind of deeper understanding. Um, I think there's two ways of applying this, at least um, for us to think about, things for us to think about, so that they're not just religious words in an old book that make us go, huh, interesting, but like get into our soul and help us um, follow Jesus. So two levels. Level one is tied to the immediate context. God has a task for Israel to build a temple. They're discouraged because it seems like impossibly hard. We don't have what we need. How can we do this? What God said to Joshua, he said to Israel through Haggai, he says to you and me, be strong, I am with you, and you can do this. So he said it to Joshua, Moses is gone, the enemy lies ahead, I'm with you, I'm gonna go before you, because I've got this, you've got this. To Israel through Haggai, he said, I know this temple, it looks like nothing. How, how could it possibly become better than it was before? But he says, I, be strong, I'm with you, because I've got this, you've got this. And that word of God remains for us today. I know that you have times and seasons in your life where you think, how could I possibly become the kind of person that I think God wants me to become? Like you just, you're, you're taking inventory of your life and your habits and your decisions and you're just like, wow, this, you're like Israel looking at the rubble of their broken temple and thinking about what it's supposed to be and you're like, I'm not seeing it. God says, be strong, I am with you. So because God's got this, you've got this. Whatever it may be, a, a sin habit that you're trying to break, a spiritual like practice or rhythm you're trying to build, an unhealthy thought or behavioral pattern, when your life does not look like you thought it would or hoped it would, and it just feels impossible, God is with you. And he's reminding us through Haggai to be strong and to trust him. Um, one of my seminary teachers, kind of a pastor, mentor, his, his uh, name is Rick Boya. He wrote this paper. We've read it together actually as a church a while ago. It's called The Metrics of Ministry. Um, in it, he talked about this concept called the presupposition of providence. It's a presupposition because it's the thing we take as granted or as foundational. It's a logical priority before we do anything else. And the presupposition is that God provides and so in the paper he wrote that what this means is that God has provided all we need to do all he wants us to do. God has given us all that we need to do and to become all that he wants us to be. He has not given us work to do that we can't actually do. Second Peter 1.3 says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Similarly, Philippians 1.6 says we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. And maybe this is all you need. Because God's got this, you've got this. Level two is abstract. 
but it has to do with letting the narrative of the Bible shape your hopes and dreams. It's not apparently practical, but it is so important that we do this. I don't know if you feel like, I've, like I feel, which is that we've somehow inherited like a, a sermon has to have like handles and a steering wheel. Like you've got to be able to go do something tomorrow based on what I'm telling you today. There's a time and a place for that, but sometimes we need to let the scripture and the story change us slowly over time and shape the things, not the things necessarily that we do tomorrow, but what we think about, what we dream about. Um, And so this passage in Haggai has some background music playing that should shape us. It should be a song that gets stuck in our head that inspires us or that challenges us maybe. And it's that song of the reversal of Babel and the return to the garden temple. There's a future reality coming. It's not like, um, it's not just a words in a book. It's not even like this um, distant belief, like, yeah, I think that's gonna happen someday, but this is reality. This is where you and I are headed, which is that God is going to rule over all of creation. And people from every nation and tribe and tongue will join together as God's people to worship and honor him. So to put it simply, um, our future as the people of God will be in the most beautiful way, multi-ethnic and incredibly diverse. So to be clear, the, the nations returning to God doesn't mean that everyone will repent and believe in Jesus. This is, some people call it universalism. It's the idea that eventually God's just gonna kind of give everyone a pass. That's not what scripture teaches. Um, but this concept means that some, many even, from every nation, from every corner of the world, will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and join this beautiful, universal, multi-ethnic family of God when the new heaven and earth arrives. So because this is coming, because this is where we are going, um, as God's people, we should desire it and celebrate it when we get glimpses of it. And we need to do this at the local church scale and when we think about the global church. So on the local church scale, I just have a few thoughts. Um, To my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Valley who are people of color, I'm so grateful that you are part of my church family. Mostly because I know you, all of you, at least a little bit, and I just like you. (laughs) I care about you, um, value who you are and what you bring to our church community but also specifically because you help our family resemble what we will be, where we are heading as a church. And so I'm grateful that you are a part of our church family. Second, churches generally seem to um, mirror the demographic of their community and or the demographic of their leadership. So we are predisposed to be predominantly white church. And I don't know if I can call that good or bad, right or wrong, or if it just is a thing. Um, If there is a way to authentically, with good, pure intentions, like make or force a church to increase its ethnic diversity, I don't know what that way is. Um, But what I can do and what you can do is let our desires be shaped by the scripture and the destination that we are headed to. We may not know how to resemble our future ethnically diverse church, but we can want to. 
we can desire to, and that is probably a very important first step for many of us. With that said, if you do have thoughts on how that can become a reality, um, I would love to know them. So there's our local church, and then there's the global scale of this desire for the multi-ethnic people of God. There should be, in each follower of Jesus, um, a growing desire for Jesus' name to be made known and to be made great in every nation. And for some, this means that you actually go overseas to the nations to preach the gospel and work in Jesus' name. For some, it means, um, I would say for the rest, it means we should be part of sending people to go do that. For all of us, it means fundamentally we just have to desire that it happen and contribute to that process. We need to desire that the kingdom of God would expand throughout the world into every nation. So when we pray as a church for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, that statement is our, our vision for why we exist at the church, what we hope to see would happen as a result of our being the church together. Um, God's kingdom come, that includes nations turning to Jesus, and it includes our church family resembling in some small way the picture of the beauty of a multi-ethnic family of God that we are heading towards as Babel is reversed and undone.